Isaiah chapter 58, and we will start in verse 6. Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing spring up speedily. And your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness, and your gloom be as noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places. And make your bones strong, and you shall be like a watered garden, like the spring of water, whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You may have a seat. We come now to the end of our rather lengthy series on the Sabbath. And I hope the discussions over the past few months have helped to deepen your understanding of the fourth commandment and how far re reaching it is through all of redemptive history. We've seen its establishment in the garden and what it meant for Adam to have a day of rest as a pledge of the eternal life that he could enter into. We've seen also how the Sabbath had implications for the nation of Israel and their rest in the land of Canaan. We've seen how the Lord's Day is a pledge to Christ's bride that He has come and He has begun the work of the new creation and that His rest from that work is a sure sign that it is complete, perfect, and never to be added to. We've also considered objections to the Sabbath. We've looked at family worship and how it sort of connects one Lord's Day to the next. And then last week we looked at a Christian theology of work and how an understanding of the biblical theology of work informs the significance of the day that we rest from our work. And I would venture to say that even as imperfect as we are who have attempted to bring these messages to you on the Sabbath, that this series has probably been a more thorough and comprehensive discussion of the Sabbath than most even Reformed believers will ever receive in their lifetime. And I hope it has been beneficial to you and that you're more well-equipped to have discussions on the Sabbath and the nature of God's law in general. But for all of our theological and redemptive historical examination of the Sabbath, the one thing we've not actually done yet is talk about how to observe it. It's a great thing that we're building our theological understanding of the doctrine, but we need to combine that understanding with a knowledge of how we are to rightly practice or put into practice everything that we've learned. So that's what we're going to discuss this evening. And I want to examine Sabbath observance, practical Sabbath observance, with the help of our reformed, reformer and Puritan forefathers. No single group of believers in church history has taught more on the theology and practice of the Sabbath than the Puritans and the reformers who immediately preceded them. And this is one of the reasons why later generations have uh, lamined, maligned, excuse me, the Puritans as being legalists because they place so much emphasis on the Sabbath and most people consider even a belief in the perpetuity of the Sabbath to be legalism. But I think you'll see tonight that nothing is further from the truth. The Puritan and Reformation view of the Sabbath was warm, rich, edifying, and to the true child of God, it is a delight to study what God has done through the men of old and their discussions of this. I want to do my biographical information right up front and tell you that virtually everything I say tonight, the concept at least, if not a direct quotation, I got from one of these men of old. 
I don't feel the need to reinvent the wheel on this one. So I read what these men had to say. I compared it to scripture to make sure that I thought that what they were saying was in accord with it. And I'm going to share a lot of that with you tonight, what a lot of these men had to say from the past. Now please understand that I do not quote the Puritans and the Reformers because they have some special authority in and of themselves or because we think that they were especially holy and smart. They were. They were men, however. And anything that they say that has authority has that authority insofar as it is in accord with the Word of God. I seek to honor what God did through the saints of old and through the gifts that He has given to His church. We've confessed that, that Christ gives gifts to His church in men who are capable of preaching and teaching. But I recognize in our circles and even in my own heart that very often we can subtly shift the ground of authority from God's Word to men that we look up to, even men of the past who are dead. So we want to make sure that we have our, our bearings straight. God established the Sabbath, and all of our duties derive from Him, not the thoughts of men, no matter how admirable those men may have been. But in my view, much of what these men had to say about the Sabbath observance is really just a fleshing out of what God had already revealed in Scripture. So I think everything we're going to see tonight does go back to the Word of God, as it should. So then, what's our outline for tonight's sermon? I've divided it up into three key points, and they are as follows. First, we're going to talk about preparation for the Sabbath. Preparation for the Sabbath. Second, we're going to talk about something that I'm calling positive Sabbath privileges. I'll explain what that is in a moment. And thirdly, the opposite of that would be negative Sabbath privileges. I originally had four points. Uh, fourth point was going to be talking about how uh, Christian Sabbath observance differs from Jewish Sabbath observance, but the sermon was getting a little long, so I, I dropped that one. If you're interested, we can talk about it afterwards. But under each of these three points that I am going to cover tonight, there will be a number of subtopics, and I'm going to support each one with some scripture and quotations, like I said, from the men of old. So then, first topic that we want to discuss tonight is preparation for the Sabbath day. Preparation for the Sabbath. Under this heading, we want to discuss a few things. Personal preparation familial preparation, and determining the start and end time of the Sabbath. And I'll explain more about that last one in just a moment. So first then, personal preparation for the Sabbath. The more that I study the Scriptures, the more I am absolutely convinced that it is the duty of God's people to prepare themselves before they come into God's presence to worship Him. Consider for a moment the Psalms of Ascent. That would be Psalms 120 to 134. Whenever the people of Israel made their annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to the temple, they would begin to sing the words of God in these psalms as they started their ascent up the hill of Jerusalem to go to the temple. Now, they had to remain outside, uh, in the outside courtyard area of the temple as the sacrifices were offered. But before they even went into the courtyard, before the worship even began they would sing the psalms of God so that they could prepare their hearts with the words of God themselves. They were not to come into God's presence flippantly after having just walked up the hill engaging in conversations about how their neighbor's crops were doing or how the local Israelites' sports team was faring that year. They got their heart focused on the Lord through the singing of His Word. And that was just the layman. The priest who actually officiated the worship and offered sacrifices, and particularly the high priest, had to undergo not only heart preparation like the layman, but strenuous physical cleansing in order to be allowed into God's temple, into the, the holy place and the holy of holies for the high priest. The high priest himself had to undress, bathe, and scrub himself in order to come and offer intercession before the people of God. God did not allow filthy sinners to stroll casually into his presence. And if the high priest were to fail to prepare, prepare himself, he would be struck dead if he tried to approach unto God in an unworthy fashion. And they say, but that's the Old Testament. Yes, it is. And those ceremonial washings and cleansings are gone. But even in the New Testament, after the blood of Christ has cleansed us from all defilement of sin, the Apostle Paul still bids people to examine their hearts and prepare themselves before they come into the Lord's presence at the Lord's table. Preparation for worship is a duty of all those who would worship God in spirit and in truth. So then how do we prepare ourselves as individuals in the new covenant economy? 
Well, the Puritans offer us two basic categories for personal preparation for worship. They are heart preparation and preparation of personal affairs. Now, in the New Covenant, we offer sacrifices of spiritual worship to the Lord. We don't sacrifice animals anymore. We offer sacrifices, sacrifices of praise and worship. And our sacrifices come from our heart and soul, a heart that has been renewed in the image of God. And so if we are to offer a proper sacrifice of worship to the Lord, we must prepare the instrument that will offer that sacrifice, our hearts. So how do you prepare your heart for worship? Well, the heart of a true Christian is most prepared for worship when it has been warmed at the fires of meditation upon the gospel. When Sunday begins to draw near, in other words, it's Saturday, and Sunday is upon you, most of us have had six days in the world. That's not a bad thing. That's where we're supposed to be. We have work to do in this life, as we learned last week. But we've had six days in the world. And even though we've engaged in personal devotions, hopefully in family devotions all throughout the week, the thoughts of the world are very often still on our hearts as we move towards Sunday. And the only way to get our minds off of earthly affairs and turned properly toward Christ is to ponder the things of heaven. And the greatest way to do that is to ponder the word given to us about the things of heaven. So when Saturday evening rolls around, you ought to go somewhere quiet where you can read and meditate. This should be absolutely done each Sabbath morning as well, but it definitely helps to start getting in that mindset even the night before. I know for me, if I have nights where I have not prepared, I wake up on the Lord's Day and, and the last thing I thought about or, or did or engaged in Saturday before was some secular thing. Maybe I watched a movie. Who knows? I can tell the difference when I wake up on Sunday morning and how difficult it is to, to start orienting my heart in the right direction. Now I've got to get kids ready. I've got to get everything prepared. It becomes sort of a pinch. And honestly, when I stroll in here, my heart is usually not as prepared as it could have been if I had done some preparation the night before. <clears throat> but it is not enough, assuming that you do this duty, that you go and you meditate upon the Word, it is not enough to merely ponder the truths of the Gospel analytically. You must meditate on them until your heart is warmed by them. A true worship of God does not come from a heart that has just learned a lot of data about God. We do need to know plenty of things. We need to be taught. We need to study. But true worship of God moves beyond simply the analytical and the memorization of facts, and it flows out of a heart that has religious affections for Christ. And the way that you do that is you take truths that you have learned and you meditate upon them until your heart begins to pour forth affections as the Holy Spirit gives increase. John Owen said the following, do not be content to have right ideas of the love of Christ in your mind unless you also have a gracious taste of it in your heart. You may actually taste that the Lord is gracious. That is, you may experience for yourself His grace in your heart. If you do not actually experience the grace and love of Christ in your heart, you will not retain for long the right idea of it in your mind. So you must meditate. Every week, upon Christ and His gospel, upon the love of Christ that has been shed abroad in your heart, upon the great redemption passages, you must meditate upon those things so that your heart is truly fit when you come into the presence of God. And then, when you have read and you have meditated, pray over what you have read about. Prayer is like the stamp that seals with hearing the Word of God in your heart. Warm your hearts by meditation and then seal that meditation through prayer, through spirit-assisted prayer. Now, all of this is necessary because we are engaged in a spiritual battle. We spend the whole week in the world. We just said that. And just because you don't leave your house, ladies, for your job does not mean you haven't spent the week in the world. Simply being in your home does not insinuate, sorry, insulate you from the lusts of your flesh, the, the pride of life, the exposure to things on the internet, all of those things will surround you even if you're in the home. They will certainly surround you if you are out amongst unbelieving people in the workforce. 
We are in the world all week, and the cares of the world, it happens to me every time. I keep wondering when sanctification is going to kick in enough to where I don't have to do this. I'm not sure it'll ever happen fully. But I know over the course of the week, I start out on Monday, and things are pretty good. And then Tuesday, they're still not too bad. And then on Wednesday, I notice that my mind just naturally goes to the things of the world because I've been spending all day caring and concerning about those things. And so if I make no conscious effort to get my mind oriented on Christ before I come into worship, I should have no surprises when I come in and I feel cold and insensitive to spiritual things. On the Lord's Day, we must prepare. Do not ever come in to worship without having prepared. Don't do it. It's not worth it. Nicholas Bound was a Puritan who ended up writing what would become the textbook on the Sabbath for all of the Puritans that came after him. And he said the following, The lack of preparation is the chief cause of so much fruitless hearing of so many good sermons. Many who have sharp intellects and generally high emotions because of a lack of preparation sit more like sticks in their seat than men when they hear a sermon. They conceive of nothing more than the texture of the pew upon which they sit, and they come away from worship with no more than they brought with them. A lack of preparation. It's the quickest and surest way to cut yourself off from the grace that we receive in worship, and it robs God of His due glory. Now, God is sovereign, and the Spirit can apply the Word being preached to our souls even in instances where we come in unprepared and with the thoughts of the world on our mind. But it should never be our desire to force Him to do so. When you come into worship, you should be thrilled and overjoyed because you're about to experience the corporate climax of what you've been engaging in privately throughout the week. It should not feel like you're coming into a whole new world when you step into worship. It should feel like the natural outflowing of what you've been doing every day of the week. If it does feel like you're stepping into a whole new world, that's a good indication that your mind is still set upon the things happening outside of here and that you probably made very little to no effort to prepare your heart. So that's preparation of the heart. Engaging intently upon the personal means of grace before you step foot in God's worship. The second area that requires preparation is the area of your personal affairs, your personal affairs. This applies to individuals and to families. When we come to worship, we are setting aside one day where we will not engage in the normal affairs of the world. That does not mean that our earthly responsibilities are going to vanish over these 24 hours. What it does mean is that we must arrange our affairs so that those responsibilities have already been taken care of before the Sabbath comes. For example, men, if you know that there is some major task that needs to be done at your job on Monday morning, morning and it's going to require you to have done some planning and preparation of some kind to do it, then you need to arrange your weekly work schedule that week so that you can have everything done that you need done before Sunday comes. If you don't, you know what's going to happen to your mind on Sunday. It's going to be constantly wondering to that thing that I've got to get done on Monday, and it's going to distract you from the worship of God. Ladies, if laundry needs to be done by Monday morning, maybe especially over the summer, you guys are going on a family trip or vacation somewhere, and you're going to leave Sunday, and everybody's got to have clean clothes, and the house has to be ready, and, and all that stuff, those things need to be taken care of by Saturday night so that you're not tempted to engage in it on the Lord's Day. For most, laundry is a part of the earthly job of the family, and those ordinary labors have to come to an end on the Lord's Day. Parents, if you find that each Lord's Day morning you guys are, you, you, your spouse, or your whole family are scrambling around like madmen trying to get all the children's clothes together and pack up all the things you need, like diapers, bottles, extra changes of clothes, pacifiers, all that stuff then chances are you've not taken time to prepare your household's affairs before Sunday morning. And that when you come, you're going to have worldly concerns on your heart because you've just been rushing around for the past hour or two hours trying to get everyone ready. You are not doing your duties of giving the day properly to the Lord 
when you are constantly scrambling around in the morning trying to get everything ready when you could have done some preparation the night before. Get the bottles packed, get the bags packed, as much as you can the night before. Make sure little Susie knows where her shoes are and that there's not gonna be a big episode of frustration when you're all trying to come out the door, this child doesn't know where his shoes are, mom's running around trying to find them, everybody's panicking or getting frustrated and start snipping at one another because we're five minutes late to church and we still haven't got everything ready. You know what that will do to your heart. I imagine there's not a person in here who hasn't experienced that scenario in some way or another. Being late to church, scrambling at the last second, and you know what it does to your mind and to your heart. Now there will obviously be certain minor things that have to be done the day of that you can't necessarily do the night before. Like making sure your child has a clean diaper before they come to church. You can't really change that the night before and expect it to still be clean by the time you leave for church the next day. Okay, you're gonna have to change the diaper that morning. You're gonna have to feed your children breakfast. You can use your common sense and your common wisdom in these things. But if it can be at all done the night before, try to do it. Try to have it prepared so that you're not just walking into worship and everyone's frustrated. That we do not want to begin our worship in that way. And since we need you and you need us to help stir one another up, if your mind is over here, you're not going to be helping me. And if my mind is on my concerns of the world, I'm not going to be stirring you up. And we're not going to have a very profitable day. And the Lord is going to be robbed of his glory. And so that brings us to another important point of preparation, particularly for this congregation. Food. We serve a meal here every lunch, and most all the families prepare at least one dish each Lord's Day. Now, is it a sin to cook a meal on the Lord's Day? After all, for our women, meal preparation is a part of their ordinary duties throughout the week, their daily labors, and those things are supposed to come to an end on the Sabbath, aren't they? Well, even in the Old Testament, the Lord knew that there were certain daily functions that were essential, like food consumption, and he made allowances for certain things. For example, in Leviticus, and I'm taking this uh, from Sam, I'm taking this straight out of Sam Waldron's book. I think he is on to something here. In Leviticus, there's sort of a spectrum of Sabbaths. We've kind of touched upon this. You had the Day of Atonement called a Sabbath day. Remember that? And then we have the Seventh-day Sabbaths. And then we have other festival or feast days that the Lord also calls Sabbaths, even if they don't fall on Saturday. So you have sort of a, a range of types of Sabbaths. And you have a range of different uh, requirements or restrictions that the Lord puts on each of these days. For example, on the Day of Atonement, there was to be no eating or food preparation of any kind. None whatsoever. That day, the one day of the year, the Day of Atonement, which the Lord called a Sabbath, was to be completely set apart. There was to be fasting and no food preparation because of the solemnity, excuse me, of the event that was taking place. But on the seventh day Sabbath, eating was allowed. And on the festival days, or the things like the Feast of Booths, there was food preparation allowed because there were feasts that were happening prescribed by God himself on those days. So on the seventh day Sabbath, minor, minor food preparation was probably allowed because of the necessity of eating. Now, how does that apply to us? Well, I would suggest that if we take the pattern for how things operated in the Old Testament, I don't think there's any reason in this case not to, that we see the following things. One, we should try to have as much of the food preparation done the day before as possible, as much. Now, obviously, for certain dishes, some things are going to have to be done day of in order to prepare them, just like with your children. I don't think the scriptures forbid some food preparation, but here's the rule. If so much of your morning time on Sunday is taken up with food preparation that you can't even prepare your heart for worship, it's too much. It's too much. Either you need to pick a simpler dish or you need to do some food prep the night before. Maybe sticking something in the oven should, would be just fine. If you've prepared something and it just needs to go in the oven, stick it in the oven day of. For most of us, that shouldn't be much of a burden, and we should still be able to get the rest of our affairs taken, taken care of. Man, I need to drink tonight. And husbands, do not put all of this preparation, this familial preparation that you must engage in, on your wife. Don't do it. 
You are the spiritual head of your household. And so you must do everything in your power to ensure that all members of your household are able to prepare themselves for Lord's Day worship to the best of their abilities. So, husbands, you may need to help do some laundry on Saturday. You may need to help get the kids' clothes laid out and organized the night before. You may need to help clean the house and maybe even do some food prep yourself. That'll be up to you and your wife as to how you want to divvy it up. But don't think that just because most of the house prep duties are your wife's responsibility during the week, that when it comes to preparing for the Lord's Day, you can sit on the couch on Saturday and lounge around while she does all of the labor and then turn around and expect her to have her heart fully prepared for the Lord's Day when you put all that burden on her. That's not fair. You step in and you help her as part of making sure that your wife is properly washed in the Word. You want her to be ready to step in and to worship God. So that's preparation for worship. It requires the, the plowing of the soil of soul so that the Word of God can find fertile ground to fall on. That's personal preparation. It also requires that we have arranged our earthly affairs so that we can work, worship without distraction or temptation. And by the way, this is really good for us. It's really good for us. We are naturally slothful. And the Lord has only given us six days which means you and I have to work a little extra harder at organizing our time and our efforts to make sure that everything is in place. We have a responsibility that uh, pagans, if we want to use that term, do not have. They use all seven days to get their work done. We only have six, but that's a good thing for us. It forces us to not be slothful. It is a natural antidote that God has given us against our slothfulness. I know that in my heart, when I have no definitive timetable during the week for when things need to get done, before I started observing the Sabbath, I would often say, eh, I'll do that tomorrow, I'll push that off to tomorrow, I don't have a definite time when that has to be done, and what happens? It never gets done. The Lord's Day forces efficiency and organization and discipline from the Lord's people, and it's a good thing for us. So that's the first, preparation for the Sabbath. Secondly. I want to talk about positive Sabbath privileges. Positive Sabbath privileges. The Sabbath day is a day of rest. But many people think wrongly about the Sabbath because they think of it only in terms of what they have to cease from doing. The rest of the Sabbath is a rest from earthly affairs. There are things that we cease from doing. But that does not mean that we then sit around and stare at a wall all day and we are observing the Sabbath. We rest from doing one thing so that we can actively engage in another thing, worship. In other words, there are positive actions that we are to undertake on the Lord's Day, things that we are to do. Those are the positive Sabbath privileges. I'm calling them privileges as a synonym for the term duty. I'm fully comfortable with saying that we as Christians have duties in regards to the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a part of God's law, and all of God's gracious laws do present His creatures with duties, and this one's no exception. We are under obligation to obey the duties of the Sabbath, but I am rather tired, honestly, of seeing how this command is so often construed as a burden and as a repressive measure on God's part. So I want to use language that attacks that misconception that people have about the Sabbath. The things that God requires us to do on this day are privileges. They're not burdens. The external laws that the Pharisees added to the Sabbath were burdens. The New Testament calls them that. But God's laws in regards to the Sabbath, God's laws, not man's laws, are gracious and merciful, and they are for our good. So then, what are the responsibilities and privileges that the Lord has given us the opportunity to engage in on His day? Well, the first and most obvious is corporate worship. Paul mentioned last week that our lives are divided into two categories of time. We have our work and we have worship. Time for work, time for worship. Now, there are all sorts of subcategories under each of those two main categories, but that's the general division, and it's a biblical one. And the Lord's Day is that time where our work lives stop and our worship lives begin corporately. Corporate worship is the culmination of our week, and it is the principal and first purpose of the Sabbath, to worship the Lord. Now, from the very beginning of the Reformation, 
our forefathers recognized that the Sabbath was a day of corporate worship for God's people. I want to give you a few quotes. I said I was going to be quoting the Puritans a lot, so here they come. After the death of John Calvin, there was an Italian reformer that I doubt too many people in this room have heard of. I hadn't heard of him until too long ago. His name was Girolamo Zanchi. And he helped to steer the Reformation Church in Europe into a deeper and richer orthodoxy. And in speaking of sanctifying the Lord's Day, he said the following. In the fourth commandment, God commands that the church should meet together to worship God and that they should, to this end, leave all other business. He does not sanctify and keep the day holy who leaves his common work but spends the day in idleness. Theodore Beza, Calvin's successor at Geneva, in his commentary on the Hebrews, spoke the following words concerning the verse that commands us to not neglect assembling together. Beza says this, This verse undoubtedly refers to the gathering of the Christian assemblies for worship. And it is appropriate that we should do so in light of Paul's exhortation to give ourselves to whatever is true and lovely and good. And nothing could be more lovely and good than to gather to worship the Lord with the Lord's people. Emmanuel Tremalius, a contemporary of Beza and Zanchi, was a convert from Judaism to the Christian faith. And he looked back upon those Old Testament scriptures that he once claimed had nothing to do with Christ. And he realized the error of his, his ways when he considered the unity between the Old and the New Testaments in the fact that the Old Testament placed a constant emphasis upon the corporate gathering of the Lord's people, and the New Testament did as well. And he said the following, A rest was given to the people of God in the Old, so that in resting from the affairs of this life, they might corporately give themselves to divine things. And this command has been no less enforced in the New Testament. The divine harmony of the Testaments is seen in the emphasis of the corporate worship of God. And then finally, Nicholas Bound, who we quoted earlier, exhorted the people of his day to worship corporately. He said, therefore, let us in the fear of God be persuaded that it is our bounden duty upon this day to join ourselves to the assembly of God's people in the church and to serve him there. Let us come to learn in Christ's school to hear his voice, to learn his most holy will, and to do it. For what excuse can a man bring to God who upon this day does not come to hear the wholesome word of the resurrection of Christ? God's people have always recognized the duty of coming together on the Lord's day to worship together. That's the first duty and privilege we get to engage in, corporate worship. I'm not going to go into all the elements. That would take us a long time. We've had sermons on that. The second duty that we are to engage in actively on the Lord's Day is private worship. We've already talked about private worship a little bit in regards to preparation for the Lord's Day, so I'm not going to go over that again. But there is a second aspect to private worship on the Lord's Day. After you have prepared your heart and attended corporate worship, one of the worst things that you can do is go straight home and go to bed without attending upon the Lord again. God's Word has been preached to you on this day. And thankfully in our church, it's actually been preached twice. And while you may have well prepared the soil of your heart that morning in meditation and in prayer before you came, and you may have listened well during the sermon, paid great attention, maybe the kids were a little extra well behaved that day, and you got to hear everything said, and so the seeds of the Word have now gone down into that soil which you actively plowed. That's a wonderful thing. But if you go home and leave those seeds unattended, they will perish. They will not bring forth fruit as they should. So it is with the graces of corporate worship. Once the sermon has been spoken into your hearing, you must take the truths therein, meditate on them, pray through them, and nurture the grace that has been given to you in the preaching of the Word of God. Let it marinate upon your soul 
until those truths are real to you and you feel the weight of the words that Christ has spoken through his preacher. Get the kids in bed and then take 20 minutes, maybe even 15 or 10 minutes, but take some time. Go be alone and go meditate upon what you heard that day. You need to nurture that word. Don't let the, 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 the birds come in and take the seeds away because you failed to actively attend to the garden of your heart. You want to know a great sign that you've not actively, actually applied the sermon from Sunday to your own life? When Wednesday comes and you think back to Sunday and you can barely remember the content of the sermon that was preached. You failed to nurture the seeds of the word that was preached to you. You've let them die and you've robbed your soul of a good gift that Christ gives to his church. <laughs> you know, we're in this area in many ways, we are just like the churches around us. We like to think that be, because we've made so many external reforms to our order of worship and to our families that that inherently brings us some progress in grace. But we're still just like many of the churches around us. They go home and they forget the sermon that they heard two days later. And most of us do the exact same thing when we're honest. Brethren, it's very easy to make external changes in a church. But the real test of our growth in grace is whether we grow in our longing for those private devotions that no one else is going to see you doing. Go home and meditate upon what you've heard. You might say, well, there's, there, my goodness, there's so many in duties to engage in in the Christian life. It seems like we, we add more of them every week. Yeah, that's exactly right. God has given you... Filthy sinners, a plethora of means of grace to grow your souls. You should be in hell right now. You know that. But I don't think we really know that. Because God was so gracious and loving that despite your hell worthiness, He decided to give to you means of communion with Him. Means, plural, more than one. You get many of them. He gave you an abundance. And so why would you not delight to make use of all of them? The problem is we don't really value communion with God. We value a little bit. Maybe we're feeling a little dry, angry. We can tell we've been away from the Lord and our souls are a little disquieted. So maybe we want to go into the prayer closet to get things right in our soul for a few minutes so that we feel better internally. But do we really want to commune with God? If so... It'll be a joy to use every means that he's given us. Not the bare minimum. As much as we can get our hands on. We've mentioned before, I think, that Matthew Henry, one of the, we're all familiar with his commentary on the Bible. Most nights, not just on the Lord's Day night, but most nights during the week, he would lay awake and contemplate the fact that he was going to die. He would lay in contemplation of that every night before he went to bed. He wasn't thinking about what he had to do and work the next day. He was thinking about the fact that he was going to die and getting ready for it. But on Sabbath evenings, he would climb into his bed and meditate upon everything that had happened during the day, and he would evaluate whether his soul was better than it had been seven days before because he had just spent a day worshiping on the Sabbath. He knew the importance of watering all of those seeds that were implanted in his soul each Lord's day. Nurture grace. Do not let it die through laziness and sin. Third Sabbath privilege that we get to engage in is the fellowship of the saints. In the fellowship of the saints, believers commune with one another for the specific purpose of building each other up in the faith. This can happen anytime that two or more saints are gathered together, even during the week. But our fellowship should find its sweetest intimacy when we gather together on Christ's day as Christ's people. Now, while we do in, enjoy fellowship and communion as we are actively worshiping together, as the service itself is going on, the, the time where we get to actually engage more directly with one another is right before the service and right after the service. As I said in my definition, the primary purpose of fellowship with one another is to build each other up. But the primary purpose is not mere socializing. 
We do socialize with one another, there's no doubt about it, and that's a good thing. But it is not a mere socializing, it is a specific type of socializing. One with Christ as its sum and substance. And in order to engage in this kind of fellowship, two things are required of you. One, you must actually be present to fellowship. Secondly, you must actively work to keep your fellowship Christ-centered. Apostle John says that one of the sure signs you have a divine and saving faith is that it results in you truly loving the brethren. And if you're a part of God's family, you will naturally love those who are also a part of God's family. And hence, you will share with your brethren the same desires for holiness, hatred of sin, and a love for Christ. And the surest way to tell that you do love the brethren is that you love spending time with them. So it is wonderful that you come to worship God on Sunday and you come to attend the corporate worship. That's great. But if you dart out the door right after the service and head home, then you show that you have no desire and hence no love for God's people. None. Now I know what most of you are thinking. I don't dart out. I stay for lunch. I never just run straight out the door. That's what first-time visitors do who feel awkward. Well, that may be true. But that in and of itself is no sign that you truly love spending time with the brethren. Because let's be honest, after the service, you're hungry, and so you want a little bit of food right away. And it would be pretty noticeable to the rest of us if you just left early every single week. So some of you well may be hanging out after the service merely to get some food in your belly and to avoid negative social implications of always being gone. You're willing to put on a smile and chat for a little bit, but in your heart, you'd rather be sitting at home by yourself. We do need to examine our hearts in this area because God's children take delight in the presence of their brothers and sisters. Not put up with it. They delight in it. So you've got to be joyfully present in order to fellowship. But merely being physically close to one another is still not Christian fellowship. In order for what we do to be true and biblical fellowship, we have to stir one another up with our words. And the only kind of words that will actually stir up a true child of God are those that point them to their Savior. There are all kinds of people who gather for all kinds of reasons to chat, to laugh, to have a good time together, but none of that is Christian fellowship. And if a neutral observer cannot tell the difference between the conversation that you engage in here on the Lord's Day and a conversation between people in a booth at Scotty's, then you're not doing Christian fellowship. And your fellowship's doing no one any good. Now here, let me get specific. Men, the Lord's Day is not the day for you to be spilling every detail about your work week, how your boss did you wrong, or some great task that you accomplished. It's also not a day for you to fill everyone in on the latest hobbies that you have undertaken, whether that be hunting, sports, fixing automobiles, collecting survival gear, whatever. This is a time for you to proclaim what great truths from the scriptures the Spirit of God has encouraged your soul with, to inquire about the prayer lives of your brothers and sisters, to speak of the glories of Christ, to discuss the application and content of the sermon that you just heard. Men in particular, we ought to be setting the example for the rest of the fellowship in how Christian fellowship is to be done. And on that note, let me speak to the ladies of the church. Now, as a caveat, what I'm about to say is drawn merely from my own personal observations, which are incomplete. I do not hear every conversation that takes place amongst you. And so you're going to have to examine your own hearts on this matter. Only you can examine your own heart and where you stand before the Lord in this. But ladies, I would dare to say that in the conversations that I casually overhear taking place, about 50% of them are in some way related to children, childcare, pregnancy, medical stuff, and other topics that are the stuff of mommy wars on social media. Now, you all may not be fighting with one another, and that's a good thing, but the topics are the fodder of social media groups very often. Caring for children is a wonderful blessing, and it is a God-given duty, but it is not the same thing as talking about Christ on the Lord's Day. 
Let us never fall into the trap of thinking that because we value raising children in a godly fashion, that we can replace conversation with Christ about conversation on secondary applications, such as child rearing. Thomas Watson's discussion of holy discourse on the Lord's Day in his book, The Great Gain of Godliness, is actually so good that I am tempted to stop the sermon and read the whole thing to you. But I will limit myself to some excerpts from it. Listen and examine yourself in light of what this godly man had to say. I'm going to read for a minute here. Christians, when they meet together, should use holy conference. This is not merely a suggestion. It is a charge. Indeed, where there is grace poured into the soul, grace inevitably flows back from the tongue. Grace changes the language of a man and makes it spiritual. When the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles, it made them speak with other tongues. Grace makes a Christian to speak with another tongue. A good Christian not only has the law of God within his heart, but on his lips. Yet how many professors of the faith are there who are as mute in religion as if their tongues did cleave to the roof of their mouths? Had they any love for God, or had they ever tasted of how sweet the Lord is, their mouth would speak of His righteousness. Friends, what should concern us in this world but salvation? What are the trinkets of this world? They are neither real nor lasting. Do we not see men heaping up riches only to be swiftly arrested by death? Let this cause blushing amongst you whose meetings are so unprofitable because you exchange Christ in your discourse for worldly speech. Why is there no good conference amongst you? Have you so much knowledge that you need to not have it increased? Have you so much faith that you need not have it strengthened? Silence in religion is a very loud sin. It is therefore a rebuke to such as when they meet together, instead of speaking of heaven, have idle, frothy speech. They talk, but do not say anything. Their lips do not drip as honeycomb, but spew forth like a spigot. If Christ should appear and ask them, as he did the two on the road to Emmaus, what discourse ye about, they would not be able to respond of Jesus of Nazareth, perhaps of toys or new fashions, but not of Christ. If idle words must be accounted for, Lord, what an account some will have to give. Now, I do want to provide clarification on everything we have just discussed. I am not saying that every single word that leaves your mouth on the Lord's Day must be about theology. I am not saying that you may not greet one another or ask how their week was. I'm not saying you may never mention your jobs or your children. I am saying that when you lay down at night and examine all of the discourse you engaged in on the Sabbath, and you should do that, that you should be able to say its primary focus was upon Christ and not upon the things of the world. And you know in your heart when you have spent a day spilling vain words instead of encouraging a brother and sister in Christ. The point here is not to set up a law where the Scripture doesn't make a law by giving you some minimum arbitrary percentage of your speech that has to be Christ-centered. If you truly desire the things of Christ, you won't even have to ask the question, what percentage of my speech do I have to make about Christ? It'll just flow naturally. It'll flow naturally. You're all mature Christian adults. You need to use your judgment and strive to keep Christ as the focus of your speech. That should be the desire of everybody. So then those are the duties that we are to engage in on the Lord's Day. Public worship, private worship, and fellowship with the brethren. And we could add works of mercy as well, but for time's sake, I'm not going to go into details on that. Third and final heading for this sermon is a discussion of negative Sabbath privileges. Positive Sabbath privileges were the things that we are supposed to engage in. Negative Sabbath privileges, by contrast, would be the things that we get to cease from doing on the Lord's Day. We get to cease from them. It's a privilege. Now, there are two ways that people typically approach the question of what things are forbidden on the Sabbath. There will be those who say, what can I not do on this day? And then there are those who say, I want to please my Lord. 
And I want to be careful to avoid doing things which displease him. What things would he have me to abstain from on the Sabbath? I'm speaking to those who would come here with that latter attitude. The former have much deeper spiritual problems that they need to deal with. They need to repent and probably believe the gospel, for starters. But for those who sincerely want to know how they can please the Lord and what things he would have them to abstain from, I will say a few things now. The first and most obvious thing that we see from on the Sabbath is our earthly work. That's not a surprise to anybody here. The Lord said, six days you will work, and on the seventh you shall rest. And that work is the common work that we do in order to provide for and or sustain ourselves and our families. Because a few verses later, God said that Adam would have to work the ground in order to bring forth food. Adam was to work for the means of providing for himself and his family, and it was that work that he was to rest from on the seventh day. So men, it is not lawful for you to work or to go to your work on the Lord's day. The Lord has reserved this day for himself. Nor is it lawful for you to engage in activities related to your work, even if you don't show up at the job site. For example, answering work-related emails, finishing a spreadsheet you've been working on, or organizing something with your boss over the phone or text or communication in any way. All work-related activities should cease for your own benefit and for the benefit of God's people who need you. But don't deceive yourself. You can cease from all activities related to your job, going to the job site. You cannot send a single email, single text message, no communication, no visible signs whatsoever that you're engaging in your work and still not be ceasing from work. How so? If your mind is filled throughout the day with all of the to-dos that are going to be on your plate come Monday morning, you've not really ceased from your work. I know in my heart all the time, I'm a very organized person. I look at the week and I say, here are all the tasks I've got to get done. Here's when I'm going to get them done. And every Sunday, especially as the evening starts to creep in, all of those thoughts start to come on my mind and I have to constantly fight against them because the Lord's day is not through. I need to be meditating on the sermon, not lining up and organizing my work schedule for that week. It's the Lord's day. And if we're going to worship in spirit and in truth, we need to do it by truly ceasing physically and mentally from our work. Ladies, this applies to you as well. You have work to do throughout the week in raising children and keeping the home operating smoothly. But your case is admittedly a little bit more difficult because caring for children is a part of your work. And so should it cease on the Lord's day? Do you not feed or clothe your children? Or should you refuse to change diapers because you are ceasing from work? We already mentioned this. No. The reality is much of your work, not all, but much of it is composed of acts of necessity, things that cannot be set aside even for a day. Your children have to eat. Like we said, you can't let that diaper go 24 hours without being changed. So some aspects of your work must continue. But there are other aspects to your work that should cease each Lord's Day. A great example is laundry. That is a job that can and be done, can and should be done before Sunday as a part of preparation. House cleaning in general, planning meals, grocery lists, bill pay, whatever duties that you have that are not absolutely necessary in order to keep a, someone alive, basically, should cease on the Lord's Day. So we cease from our common labors, insofar as they are not a work of necessity. The second thing we get to rest from is our lawful earthly recreations. Because if the purpose of the Lord's Day is to worship, then we should cease from all things, even lawful things, that do not facilitate personal or private worship. And lawful recreations are a primary example of something that can keep you from worshiping on the Lord's Day. What are lawful recreations? They are those pleasurable activities that are not sinful in and of themselves and can be engaged in during the week once all required duties have been completed. So, for example, if you enjoy seeing a certain sports team play, exercising, knitting, playing board games, watching the occasional film, all of those things are lawful so long as they don't interfere with your God-ordained duties, like going to work, discipling your children, prepping meals, or attending local church functions. Those are all things you can do. But on the Lord's Day, even those lawful recreations must come to an end because they are not conducive 
to engaging in worship. They are, by definition, things that you do for your own pleasure. And in Isaiah 58, the passage we read before tonight's sermon, God commands that on the Sabbath we cease from doing our own pleasure. It should be our pleasure to worship. So there are things that are pleasurable to you that you can do on the Lord's Day, just not things that are of your own pleasure only. Now, let's be honest. The average person in this congregation probably doesn't have as many recreations as the average person out in the world. Maybe some exceptions, but for the most part, I think we could say that. We can be very thankful that we're trying to build our lives around biblical duties like worship, childbearing, child discipleship, family worship, work, all of those good things. So most of us don't have as much free time for recreations as our next-door neighbors. We don't typically engage in things like adult sports leagues, constant NFL binge-watching, endless hours of Netflix, and going out to bars. But one recreation that I think we need to be mindful of in this congregation, especially on the Lord's Day, is social media. Social media in our culture has become the quickest pastime or recreation that you can switch into and out of almost instantaneously. And most of the things that are done on social media are idle, time-passing things. We scroll through endless posts and random stuff, and we don't really read or invest much time in 90% of the posts. But we do it because it's an easy, quick, and cheap way to fill some time. And then, even after we just scrolled through a bunch of posts 15 minutes ago, we'll get bored and go on and scroll through the exact same post that we scrolled through 15 minutes ago just to pass some time. Why do we do that? It's not because we're interested in most of the stuff that's on there. It's because we just want a way to pass the time. And on the Lord's Day, there are very few things that can quickly divert your mind from worship like scrolling through social media like you do on every other day of the week. We need to put the lawful pastime of social media, for the most part, away on the Sabbath. Just put it away. If you need to leave your phone at home, maybe don't even pick it up and tempt yourself for 24 hours. That's up to you. But I would suggest that some of the guidance about social media use on the Lord's Day also applies during the week as well. Lawful pastimes are lawful during the week. But just because it's lawful doesn't mean it's profitable at all times. During the week, you have work that God has assigned you to do. doesn't matter who you are. You have work. Even children have something they're supposed to be doing. And recreations are for those people who have completed all of the work and duties that God has assigned to them. Some of you spend lots of time on social media during the week, even though you know good and well it's preventing you from accomplishing the work that you've been assigned to do. Ladies, some of you need to examine your social media usage during the week. You don't necessarily have a boss, a human boss, who's looking over your shoulder, examining everything you're doing at every second like your husbands do. So it's often easy for you to slip into too much online recreation when you should be working. A good rule of thumb to ask yourself is this. Would my husband be fired from his job if he spent as much time scrolling through social media at his work as I do when I'm supposed to be doing my work? If so, it's too much. It's too much. Fathers, if you find yourself coming home and getting on social media after work and it's distracting you from discipling your wife and kids, it's too much. We've got to control ourselves. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. And one of the greatest testers of your self-control is your phone. I am not exempt. I had to get rid of my iPhone. I couldn't handle it. I'm weaker than most of you in this area. Now, there can be legitimate reasons why you go on social media on the Lord's Day. It happened earlier today. Paul sometimes posts links to the day's sermon on Sunday night on social media. Sometimes you might want to discuss an edifying post or an edifying article that you read with a brethren while you're here on the Lord's Day. And so you need to log on to social media and just show them that. Those things are fine. But again, the point here is not to give an exhaustive list of everything you can't do on the Sabbath. Trying to come up with an exhaustive list of Sabbath laws is something that the Pharisees did. You need to use your judgment. And there are countless hypothetical scenarios, like I said, we could go through in terms of what we should not do on the Sabbath. We talked about not working or engaging in recreations because those are the two biggest categories. But here's the general rule that you can use. To sum it up, when it comes to figuring out what you should abstain from on the Lord's Day, just ask yourself a simple question. Is what I'm doing conducive to carrying out one of the positive duties of the Sabbath and or is it an act of necessity? 
such as driving to church, getting dressed in the morning, those acts of necessity. If it's not helping you carry out public or private worship, fellowship with the brethren, or conducting acts of mercy, then you shouldn't want to do it. This is the Lord's day. This is the day that you can feed your soul. And to finish up, this day is the pinnacle of our weekly activities. It is a day that we can be spiritually refreshed. And if you cannot desire the activities of the heavenly city more than the fleeting pastimes of this age, it's not hard to tell where your citizenship lies. So let's strive to sanctify this day in our hearts, not because properly observing it adds anything to the righteousness of Christ. It doesn't. But because this, the Lord Christ himself has given us this day that we might enjoy him. Let's use it well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for everything that your word teaches us. Every word from the scriptures is as honey from a honeycomb. Lord, I pray that as we go out this week, that we would remember all of the words that have been spoken from your word here this day, and that we would meditate upon them, that we would teach them to our children, that our homes would be filled with the savor of Christ Jesus, and that we would put to death our sin, because our Savior is worthy of every act of obedience, every act of worship that our hearts can possibly produce. We do love you. And we ask that you would be glorified on the rest of this day in our conversation, in our fellowship, and in our meditations as we go home. Amen.